comic fans assemble. Ace Comic Con is coming to the Wamu Theater in CenturyLink Field Event Center June 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Join Avengers stars Thor, Chris Hemsworth, Loki, Tom Hiddleston, and Spider-Man Tom Holland for an epic weekend with more Marvel heroes, stars of The Flash and Riverdale, and WWE superstars. Enjoy 60 top comic creators, 100 vendors and exhibitors, and 30 hours of panel programming. Tickets and information available now at acecomiccon.com. part about the Star Wars aesthetic is that um, we're sort of coming into this world and it's been around for years and decades and thousands of years possibly and so you're entering this world where people jump into a spaceship like we do a car it's not a big deal there's not a big fly around and hey look at all this cool stuff it's just like hey I'm getting in my speeder and I'm going from the story point you know you're mixing in an, an ancient religion with spaceships um, and that sort of, to me, like courses through the entire nervous system of that property. Well, when I work with new designers for Star Wars, it's interesting because their first instinct is to draw like cool spaceships and monsters and stuff like that. And that's not what we want. No, if you actually look at Star Wars as a historical film, as a period piece, that's where it is. And that's where you have to ground everything in reality and you have to do a lot of research. You have to be almost like an archaeologist and you go back into the textbooks find things in human culture that are really exotic, that are interesting, and then you update it. So it's really more about sort of uh, history delving and, and updating things and twisting it a little bit. You know, and granted, yes, you know, we are designing spaceships, we are designing creatures, but that's a piece of it. Star Wars fans and move milkers everywhere. Welcome to episode number 127 of Blast Points. This is Jason. This is Gabe. And later on, we are going to be talking all about The Art of Solo, the brand new book by Phil Sostak, going into the production art, concept art of Solo, Star Wars Story. And it's a tiny book that's packed to the brim with tons of stuff so it's not really a tiny book but it looks small on the outside but it's huge on the inside it's like getting fries at five guys (laughs) you get one cup but somehow you also have a paper bag full of fries and luckily though the solo book isn't full of grease and doesn't eat through the dust cover before you get it home (laughs) my hands were sweating so bad looking at it though that i did have to take the the dust jacket off (laughs) I don't want to get this thing ruined. It's too pretty. But first, there's all kinds of Star Wars stuff going on. But let's talk about Star Wars Celebration. Star Wars Celebration, what's up? It's real, it's happening, it's coming to Chicago. For whatever reason, it seemed like it would be easier because it's close to home, but it's actually, I think, more stressful (laughs) because it's so close. So as of recording this, five-day passes, uh, both adult and kids, are sold out. And probably by the time this episode comes out, 
I don't, everything could be sold out by <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, it's going fast. People are excited. Good luck finding a hotel. That seems to be the biggest stress for everybody. Cause that's, I think the only bad thing with coming to Chicago is unlike Orlando or Anaheim where there's Disney and other things to, to basically make it be hotel capital of the world, downtown Chicago has hotels, but they're kind of spread out compared to where the convention center is. So it's causing some people some stress, I think. <laughs> but it'll be exciting to be uh, right in the heart of Chicago and the wonderful warm April weather. It's going to be great. Don't want to jinx it. It could be warm. It could be. It could be 90 degrees. It could be 20 degrees. Yeah, it could be minus 20. <laughs> but then we have an excuse to wear a big furry Han Solo jacket. So there's going to be a lot of Vandor solos probably at Celebration and Chewies just to keep warm. So the five-day passes selling out in basically a day, which previously would take months. I don't know, like like so much going on in Star Wars fandom right now, it uh, begs the question, like, what the heck is going on? What's happening here? <laughs> this is weird. Yeah, because it's either McCormick is huge and they're going to use the whole thing and they sold a ton of them, or they didn't want it to be as big... <laughs> It's the last one, and they just cut off the number of tickets. But I can't imagine them trying to make it smaller. So I gotta think there's just going to be a lot of people. It's and so it's five days, which is insane. But then, like when if you look at like the ticket details, it says the Thursday doesn't start until one o'clock, and they're calling it like the Bounty Hunter Preview Day or something. And they said there's going to be no like stage programming at all on Thursday. I read that as like, oh, well, probably something big is happening on Friday morning. You know, if you went to Celebration Orlando, for example, and you wanted to go to the 40th anniversary panel, there's absolutely no way you could have done it unless you got there really early the day before, which they never told people. Like, if you have no experience going to, like, giant conventions like this, you know, somebody could easily be like, well, I didn't know I actually had to be there on Wednesday early Wednesday to be able to go see the programming on Thursday. I just wonder if they're opening up the doors so at least they can get everybody inside and not have people waiting outside in downtown Chicago, lining up, waiting for them to open up the doors. And at least they can get them in, get them in line. Let's get this thing going. I don't know. Yeah, part of me hopes that because McCormick is so big that they're going to keep all the lines and everything inside because, yeah, it's a little different <laughs> depending on the on the weather, how it's going to be outside in Chicago. But also, I think we've been talking about this, too, that it's going to be nice to get there on Thursday and just kind of wander the show floor and kind of get a feel for everything before you end up, you know, in the thick of it on Thursday with panels and whatever. Because it always seemed like in, in years past, like we didn't really even see the show floor till Saturday or till Sunday sometimes because it's like. You're either in line or you're in the panels or whatever. And then by Sunday, you're like, okay, I'm going to just kind of chill out and go and check out the show floor. It'll be nice to kind of get a head start on that on Thursday. And there's there's Monday. That is going to be nuts. Like, what is going to be going on? What is that going to be like? I just still keep thinking it's like after every celebration, we're like, man, if only celebration was longer. And then now they're like, okay, it's longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, maybe we shouldn't have wished for that. I don't know if we can really handle five days. And a Monday could be really awesome where Monday, you know, a lot of people have got to go back to work. And the loonies who would just keep going if it was every day of the week for the, the rest of the month will still be wandering around like, <laughs> can, can, can we have more celebration? Can we just keep going? Yeah. Well, it's going to be cool, too. I, I'm going to assume to have stuff all day Sunday and into Sunday evening, too. So, like, what's that going to do? Theoretically, right, there's going to be a lot of big panels for them to have, right? Because we're going to have Episode Nine stuff, probably Ryan Johnson Trilogy stuff, the Game of Thrones guys stuff. Resistance will be, what, Season 2, maybe? There might be another animated show at that point. Maybe there's another Star Wars story movie announced by that point. John Favreau's TV show thing. Yeah, the TV show stuff. The Disney Park, Galaxy's Edge will be just about to open. Yeah, so I it seems like there's definitely four full days of 
panels to have just with that stuff. And that's not even counting any classic stuff. And then just the weird panels that get mixed in. Yeah, I can't wait. I hope because it'll be the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace. I would die, pass out, do a backflip for like John Knoll, Doug Chang, Ian McKegg getting real weird with Phantom Menace talk. Oh, man. Bring, bring out Liam Neeson. And if there was a celebration for Ahmed Best to come back to, it would be for the 20th anniversary of Phantom Menace. I don't know. Yeah, part of me feels like they would do that because it was like everyone wasn't so sure how things were going to go down with Hayden and like everyone went nuts and was cheering. And I'm sure it was great for him to to get a warm welcome. And it would be great to, yeah, give all the Phantom Menace people as many as they can that opportunity. Have the real Watto floating around. Get get your picture taken with Watto. Kidster. (laughs) Kidster for hire, right? He's a lawyer now. Isn't he a lawyer now? I think so. Yeah. It's it's too bad. Jira passed away, so she can't be there. But that'd be storms coming up. Yeah. Jira's family. Jira's daughter can give a speech. Seal Bibble. Man, Bibble. This is outrageous. It's outrageous. This is outrageous. It kind of doesn't surprise me that the five day passes are sold out so fast too, because this really kind of is the first like non-reoccurring special to a city big pop culture convention ever to hit the midwest like usually these things are just on like the two coasts but like yeah chicago has c2e2 but that comes every april and like you know there's always the 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 big conventions in a town but celebration is that special yeah one celebration hasn't been in the midwest since celebration three which was a while ago uh who wants to see a new teaser So it's probably good. We can probably start really talking about episode nine now. getting to be nine time it's time it's nine time i was thinking about it too i'm actually surprisingly i think i'm looking forward to this extra long break last jedi solo one two punch is potentially overload for me maybe and it'll be nice to kind of just sit back get excited for nine i can watch last jedi on blu-ray in a few in a few weeks probably i'll be able to watch solo on blu-ray probably (laughs) and just kick back Obsess over episode nine tidbits. With some blurry photos of somebody with a hood over their head. That might be Adam Driver. It's coming. It's coming. So the news came out last week that the production title for nine has changed from Black Diamond to now Trixie, which I'm glad they're keeping the names for the production titles all in the theme of names that sound like bands that could have played the sunset strip in 1990 uh, what was uh the trickster there was trickster but you know probably there was somewhere like a hair metal band called trixie yeah. <laughs> Man, so may, is episode nine hair metal themed is that you know is that what jj was writing to yeah maybe maybe the uh, resistance pilots have caught up to the wonderful lion man Pilots of uh, Rogue One, and everyone's just got flowing locks of golden hair and mustaches. Poe Dameron's going to grow his hair out. Finn already said he's growing his hair out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a picture of John Boyega like on Instagram with long hair. So what's up with that? Mm-hmm. Maybe if, if Kylo hasn't cut his hair, maybe his hair will be down like to his butt. Just raggedy Kylo Ren, with the big beard. <laughs> he's just doing like sweet guitar licks and solos. Because he's Ben Solo. He's probably, yeah, he's, write, he's writing songs about Ray, but he can't play them for anybody. They're just for him. Making her mixtapes. They just overdub M Driver's voice with like a really high-pitched falsetto. We touched hands. <laughs> but we can't be friends. You close the door on me. I'm going to close the door on you. 
JJ's going to try to out weird Ryan. So we'll see. He's like, you thought that was weird? Just wait, JC, Trixie. Oh, <laughs> uh, see. So the reports coming out of Pinewood that like sets are being built as we speak. Giant sets, tons of sets. Like, ah, uh, like I was thinking about it today. Like, man, somewhere like Neil Scanlon is making creatures right now for episode nine. There's crazy planets and insides of spaceships being built and stuff. Like, ah, oh, it's, it's the golden time. Yeah. I just want to disguise myself as a trash can and go wandering around Pinewood. You can take a week off. Go do it. <laughs> I think there was a report. Somebody saw Daisy Ridley working out at a gym somewhere near London. Things are gearing up. We're getting, it's almost nine time. Only 18 months. We're almost there, right? So I went to go see Solo again last night for the, the seventh time. And I, I loved it my first time, but I'm like we've said, Star Wars movies are like bringing a new baby home. Sometimes I think of Star Wars movies as getting a new pair of shoes. You know, you see them on the shelf at a store and they look really great. But sometimes you you know you like them, but they don't fit quite right. You, you got to wear, you got to break it in for a little bit before you're like, oh, yeah, I really like these shoes. These are really working for me now. Solo, now I've broken in those shoes. As much as I enjoy Solo a lot, like a whole lot, I'm more excited about Nine. And I think I'm learning about myself through Solo that I just like the saga films more. Nothing against Rogue One, which I love a lot, and nothing against Solo. But like the episode films are what really get me excited. Yeah, I think I'm the same way. That's part of, I think... My hard time with Solo is like, I can't stop thinking about Last Jedi still. We're still going steady. And now I, I got to go on dates with Solo, but I just want to hang out with Last Jedi still. You were you were going through the Imperial Checkpoint with Last Jedi and Rebolt grabbed your Blu-ray. No! I'll come back for you! I had to join the Imperial Army to get a ship to get back to Last Jedi. <laughs> The mystery of not even having really any idea what episode nine is going to be is going to be maybe just intense, like more so than, I mean, Solo, we kind of knew what was going to be in it. I almost feel like Last Jedi, we kind of knew what was going to, we knew it was going to be Luke and, and, and Ray, but now with nine, it's like we have the longest wait since Disney started making Star Wars movies and we have the most wide open story, like what's going to happen. And that's really exciting. George's genius was he could come into that table of all these different drawings and he'd go, hmm, this one, that head of this one, and the body of that one. And you'd look at them and go, oh my God, it's, it had to be that way. What we did, I like to think that if different departments were making a, a war movie, say World War II, they would go to the history books, they would look at the, the costumes that the different armies were wearing. You'd look at the machines and the kind of gritty realism and the, even the kind of characters that existed back then. And then you draw that from that as inspiration to make your costumes and sets and so on. Um, there is no history book for Star Wars. So the concept design department makes the history books. We work with George and with whoever the director is on the new films to actually create the book that the other departments can come to and draw their inspiration from to make make the reality. So the art of Solo Book. Continuing the long tradition, like we were saying in our Last Jedi, Art of Last Jedi book. The long tradition of Star Wars art books. Still going strong. I don't know, I really, really, really enjoyed the Art of Solo book. A lot. I was curious after seeing the movie for the first time without ever flipping through the book, like, ah, what's the art of book going to be like? Like, to me, there weren't as many, like, standout, like, wild visuals when watching the movie. Like, if anything, Solo is more pared down than Force Awakens or Last Jedi or even Rogue One. I'll never make that judgment again on a Star Wars movie because, as usual, the art of Solo... Is pretty incredible. Well, what's kind of neat with it, too, is it kind of gives you 
some of the feel that maybe you didn't get in the movie because the movie is kind of pared down and, and tight where it's great seeing some of the concepts of similar places from the movie, but kind of expanded out kind of to see what's going on around what you saw in the movie. Because in some cases, the movie just didn't have time to stop and kind of show you that stuff. And it's neat to look at it in, in concept form or painting form. Yeah. And there's so much of that, like just letting you slow down and appreciate all the work that went into what you're seeing on the screen. The book opens up right away and you see an, an Ian McKegg drawing of a very young Harrison Ford looking Han Solo. And he's got like a Boba Fett jetpack over his shoulder. And just like the art of last Jedi book, the art of Solo gives a lot of really interesting timetables on the production of the film and kind of the step-by-step process of the creation of the film, at least from the visual perspective. It's been interesting with these last couple books too, to, to kind of get more insight in just how much of a pre-production machine they have right now. And that, you know, hearing about people are jumping back between two Star Wars movies at the same time or are finishing one and two weeks later starting on the next one. Like it's, it's pretty impressive just how much Star Wars is being created every minute of every day these last few years. I was thinking that too, going like reading through the book, like, wow, it's a lot of Star Wars going on. <laughs> And it's not just like there's two guys doing it. There's just dozens of concept artists just working, designing all this stuff, all this great stuff. The, the book starts out in October 2012. We're talking about how Larry Kasdan is invited out to Skywalker Ranch to talk to Kathy Kennedy and George Lucas about the future of the Star Wars saga, including... The spinoff films. And Kasdan kind of says at that, like, well, I could do a Han Solo movie, which was kind of like we said in um, our solo pre-show. That was kind of the birth of the whole idea. And then February 2013, just months later, the spinoffs are announced officially. And Simon Kinberg is doing one. And then there's Solo, which at that time had the production name of Harry and the Boy. So then in April 2013, Lucasfilm... Senior Vice President of Physical Production, Jason McGatlin, reached out to Doug Chang, who at the time was working on The Force Awakens, to put together a crew of artists to help inspire Kasdan. So Chang got some of the artists out of Force Awakens and some who didn't get a chance to work on Force Awakens. And they were kind of working with Larry Kasdan, communicating back and forth, doing art and kind of throwing ideas back and forth, getting the whole solo project kind of kind of moving along. Every two weeks, I guess, uh, Doug Chang and Kasdan would talk to each other. And a lot of the, the basics of this early version of the script are still there. Of course, there's young Han. He had a girlfriend named Kura. He, he was on the run from the very uh, Dickens-like version of uh, Corellia. The, the Kessel Run was always there. The Wookiees were always enslaved on Kessel. I like that early on they were thinking of going to Tanab. Yes. It's got to end up in a movie at some point. Even if we don't find out about Lando's maneuver, we at least get to go and visit Tanab. Well, and what was Tanab? Tanab was supposed to be... They haven't said, and maybe it's it didn't really end up there, but the concepts they were doing of Tanab were kind of jungle-like, and I wonder if some of that ended up what they used for the very last scene. What I thought was uh, Felucia. Someone must have told him about my little maneuver at the Battle of Tanev. I'm surprised they didn't ask you to do it. In these early screenplays, Han was a pilot in a fleet resisting the Empire. And he crashed his ship in a hangar and got kicked out. And that's what led him to Mimban. Things kind of move forward with uh, Ian McKaig doing drawings of like Han saving Chewie in the battlefield and Chewie saving Han in the battlefield. And it's interesting. They say in the book that that then would establish the, the life debt, which I don't know when I watched solo, I never even thought for a minute, like, Oh, they didn't, they didn't mention a life debt, but I've heard so many people be like, Oh, they didn't mention a life debt. Who cares? I think the only thing with it, I like how they, I think they were implying in the, in the uh, art book though, that, they kind of had it done the other way where it was like Han owes, really owes Chewie the life debt. Yeah. Because there's the drawing where, where Chewie's actually the one saving Han. 
And that seems like a uh, a very Han thing that, in his mind, Chewie owes him the life debt, but really, Chewie's the one that saved him. <laughs> Chewie's the one watching after this guy. Yeah. Oh, and I like the idea, too, that they're both, you know, they don't have to have this life debt thing, which is never mentioned in the films. But they why can't they just be buddies? And why, like, they're both out there in search of family. Yeah. They're both, like, orphans. They're both lost. They're both looking for the same thing, like a place to belong. But they're buddies together. What's what's so wrong with that? Did did George's dog, Indiana, owe him a life debt? No, they were buddies driving around L.A. together. <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> <laughs> George, I have some great ideas for films, but you'll owe me a life debt. <laughs> Lucas slipped in the bathtub and Indiana jumped in and braced his fall. Oh, thank you. I owe you what they call a life debt. Thank you, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things with these these early drawings, though, is I, I really like the fact that we get, it seems like in all these art books at the beginning, there's always like the Ian McKaig sketches that look like prequel sketches, right? Like we were talking about that in the Last Jedi one with the, the his sketch of Luke, that it's cool we get the, we get another Chewy one. An Ian McKaig, che- young Chewy, which it doesn't say the date, so I don't know if this, was just for Solo, or if some of these were unused Revenge of the Sith sketches, maybe? On page 20, there is the Ian McKegg Hans, young Han Solo drawing from Revenge of the Sith. Like, Yeah, they acknowledge that that's for real. And it almost happened. Yeah, and well, and technically, other than him, honestly, maybe he was raised by Wookiees. We don't know. <laughs> he can speak it. Um, maybe his dad was a Wookiee. Maybe when he's talking about his dad, he's talking about his adopted dad. Flibbly book. But at least, I mean, the visual, right? I mean, Han probably was a dirty, he was a dirty street kid. That's probably what he looked like. So it is still indirectly for real. So once they were all finished with Force Awakens, because Kasdan moved off uh, right in Solo to go, um, go work on that. As we know, Kasdan brought in his son, John, and they went back to work on Solo. So it's interesting, John Kasdan saying in the book, at the time we started working in earnest on Han Solo, we were both familiar with and had actually collaborated on working Han's death scene. Personally, I wouldn't have been, would not have been excited to work on a young Han Solo movie had the character not died in episode seven. So his death for me was essential going forward. Not only that, but there are thematic undercurrents in this movie that point very directly to his fate 40 years later. If character is destiny... Hans was written long before the moment his son stabbed him through the heart with a lightsaber. (laughs) It's essential humanism in him that is at once his greatest strength and his undoing. Heavy, heavy stuff. But it's true. He's always got to be the good guy, even if it's not in his best interest. But it's, it's, yeah, it's so great hearing, though, that, that with the two projects being written so close, closely together, that, the early days of Han Solo and the end of Han Solo were very interconnected. The droid we seek is aboard the Millennium Falcon. In the hands of your father, Han Solo. He means nothing to me. And kind of right after those pages, there's a whole series of illustrations of young Han. The handsome Han ones. And you get this, too, in kind of some of the, the explorations for Kira coming up. They were taking a lot of influences from 1970s punk rock, like New York and like Blondie and for Han, kind of like The Clash, like these kind of tight leather jackets and kind of taking a more rough and tumble kind of punk street kid look for these characters, which a curious thing with the book is the absence of just about any mention by name of Phil Lord, Chris Miller or Ron Howard. But I wonder how much of the influence of, you know, let's look at the clash for Han Solo and Debbie Harry for Kira's look came from Lord and Miller. I guess we'll, we'll probably never know for sure, but I, I got to imagine this a lot of this early stuff, I mean, they were on board at that time and had to have been given feedback and been involved. I don't know. It's These books are always so much fun, and in some ways I think it's they're like it's bittersweet because it just makes you want to see 
more of this stuff in in the movie and make the movie even longer like just seeing all this early Corellia stuff and their costumes and the whole punk rock Dickens 70s New York City vibe like I kind of wish we would have got like an hour of the movie just them hanging out there <laughs> running from the Empire cops and doing street races and stuff like so all the stuff is just so great there's stuff in there with um, early versions of the movie that had Han working in an Imperial factory on Corellia uh, building droids uh, before he goes to prison. And in the prison, he actually meets Chewbacca. And in their prison cell, there's one part where there's actually a bigger monster than Chewbacca. Yeah. Beat them both up and they have to like work together to defeat this other giant monster. Yeah. There's pages and pages and pages of pictures of concepts for Han's speeder with its muscle car roots, which is just fascinating. I like it. At one point, they just say it looks like the Bible and they went with it, that it does. They would acknowledge it looked like a book and they just kind of kept kept going with it. Every time I look at those photos of Han's muscle cars and every time I go to see Solo, I said it on our Solo review episode, but man. That whole opening of the movie with the Corellia chase with Moloch chasing them. I don't know. That's maybe securing a spot in my definite top six favorite Star Wars moments ever already. I could see that. That's, that's yeah, like I said, yeah, I agree. That's my favorite part of the movie. That beginning. And like I was just saying, I, mean, I want more. <laughs> All that stuff was so cool. They could have just made the first solo movie just. Three years previous, young Solo and Kira adventures on Corellia. It's just always so impressive that, they, you know, it's such a small part of the movie, but they pack just so much detail and kind of world building that you can just imagine what an hour of movie could be in just those few shots that they show. There's pages and pages and pages of uh, concepts for Lady Proxima. Yeah, that's obviously one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> Man, there's a, on what, 55, there's like an octopus version of her just sitting in a bathtub with like little babies. Did you see that they played around with that one part? The movie was going to open up with a, with a fake out, very much like the uh, the Last Jedi fake out opening, where it was a, we'd see space and a Star Destroyer. But as you went underneath, you actually saw the Star Destroyer was like being worked on and being built over Corellia. There, it's funny how... For every one of these movies, there's always this awesome idea for a, a start that doesn't get used for whatever reason. It's almost like at some point there'll be enough new movies with unused opening shots that they can just make like a bonus DVD of just like, hey, here's all the openings we didn't do. It's a, I was never sold on the the fake out with Finn in the bubble in the back to bubble opening for Last Jedi. I, I'm glad they went with the opening they did. And I really do like the way Han opens up with him hot wiring the car. And I, I also really like that it's the first Star Wars movie that doesn't start in space. Well, it's fitting for the movie, too. But this would have been really cool, too. <laughs> That's one of the things that is very different about Solo as a movie. I mean, they do go to space, but it really seems to be the least about space in a way. It's a very not Earth, but Earthbound kind of movie. Grounded. Yeah. Man, back to the near the Proxima stuff. This is still, I can't wrap my head around this because as far as I know, this is the only place to even talk about that. The Corellian hounds were potentially real dogs in costumes. Did you see that? In fact, um, I think it was... um just this week on Instagram, some of the effects guys posted pictures of them putting the uh, the Corellian hound heads on real dogs. Oh, that's so crazy. Because I, I really thought they were CG, but. Yeah, I can't wait to see that on the Blu-ray. I guess maybe they got so excited putting the straws on the dogs for the crystal foxes. And when that didn't work out, like, we're going to make this work. It's my dream. All this time I need a dog in a suit. Lucas put a freaking elephant in a suit. Neil Scanlon's like, I'm four movies in and I haven't got a dog in a rubber suit yet. <laughs> My time's going to be up at some point. Uh, 
So coming up later, they st- they start talking about uh, Chewbacca. They have a whole chapter on Chewbacca, and you'd think that like, well, what do you mean Chewbacca is Chewbacca? What are you going to do? But it was really interesting reading it because they talk about it doesn't. I think the quote from Neil Scanlon is: "We realize it doesn't matter that Chewbacca." doesn't look like this perfect version that we have stamped in our mind. The whole point is he shouldn't look like that. So if we don't clean the suit, it looks a little ragged, knotted, and mangy. That's treated as a positive. So like the solo Chewie, I was thinking this when I watched the movie last night. It's like a combination of every Chewie ever. Like there's Wild and Loose Return of the Jedi Chewie in there, but he's not super wild and loose. He's not like Revenge of the Sith, weird, smooth head, senior pitcher, Chewy. But it makes sense where it's early enough that they're not, for once, they're not trying to match a previous Chewy. Because really, I guess if you think about it, right, a new New Hope comes out, Chewy looks like Chewy, and then from then on, whenever Chewy shows up, he kind of has to kind of match the previous Chewy in a way. But then they want to do it different or something. Or with this one. Before we first see Chewie, so really he doesn't have to match anything because it's pre-having to match, if that makes any sense. I I, I feel you. All these Chewie drawings are so great. It makes me wish that they went a little wilder with the animatronics on his face. They still like the personality. I mean, because I think we always see Chewie and how his face moves. Like they kind of keep that, but like seeing some of these just kind of different facial expressions on Chewie and some of these concepts is just really fun to see. And there was a whole period of time, early concepts of the movie where Chewbacca was wearing stormtrooper armor. Yeah, that whole idea of of Imperial Wookiee troopers is pretty. Uh, it's kind of out there. <laughs> It's like the one shot of a bunch of it just looks like Wookiees, like trick or treating. It's like there's there's a Chewbacca mom in a minivan somewhere wearing a stormtrooper mask, making a video on her phone in the parking lot of Target. No, she's on all the talk shows. Yeah, and all of this was going on like July 2015, which put in perspective that was two months after Celebration at Anaheim, with a costume department. They say for Last Jedi was in full swing. Rogue One was just about to start filming and they were really assembling their their art department for solo and blocking out like the 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 train heist like the Kessel run they, they were still working on like Tanab like we said before and like we were saying it's just crazy like all during that time like Last Jedi Rogue One and Solo all these movies were being worked on at the same time yeah it makes you wonder all these what secrets are they working on right now it's like the government when they release like this when the stealth fighter comes out or whatever. You're like, oh, this is so high tech, and it's like, oh no, we've been working on this for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> We're just showing you now because it's old. Well, and there's a great quote in here coming up from the weapons and property master, which has got to be an amazing job. This guy Jamie Wilkinson, he's talking about how with Rogue One and Solo they treat them like period films, and Rogue One they treated like a '70s period film. Where it had a very 70s influence. So now for Solo, they treated it like a 60s period film. So they went back and studied a lot of the 60s aesthetic, looked at design from that time, looked at films from that time. And that makes total sense with the interior of the Falcon being very, very like 2001. And I know the movie almost having more of like a 60s movie kind of look to it. And like one movie that they bring up throughout the art book a lot that was a big influence on the design and look of the movie is uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which you never would have guessed was a big influence for a Star Wars movie. I think it's interesting, too, just with the uh, dirty and grimy the movie looks, too, is that, you know, for how much everybody made a big deal about the saga movies still shooting on film, this movie looks way filmier than they do. And this one's all digital. So we kind of, George Lucas' dream has uh, come true that it's getting to the point that you can kind of do whatever you want and it doesn't, you don't really know what, what you shot it on. I don't think we can go on without talking about the picture on page 90. Known as Static Version 1E by Klein and Jenkins. 
I don't know what the story reason is, but it's basically Han looking at Chewie, and Chewie's got a little static in his hair. Maybe a lot of static in his hair. This was one of the first images I saw when I opened up the book for the first time, and I had to put the book down for a minute. <laughs> Get my composure. What was going on? What conversation was happening that inspired this piece of production art? Was it ever in the script? Did they get like hit by lightning and Chewie's got the static electricity in his hair? Did they ever film it? Is there footage of this somewhere? There's a lot of illustrations in the book that have characters making a lot more goofy faces. You kind of get the sense in some of the production art that at one time, perhaps the movie was a bit more comedic. Because like, it's not like it's not like Solo is a deadly serious film, but like we said in our review episode, it has its serious moments. And it has its goofier moments. But like looking through the book, there's some real goofy stuff. Well, even to, wait, towards the beginning, I think before they even start numbering the pages, there's the Han and Chewie running on Mimbin, running from troops, and Chewie's making a super goofy face. <laughs> and they're jumping through the mud. So by late 2015, a production office was set up. The movie's now known as Red Cup. A lot of work is going on for Beckett's crew. There's some great illustrations in the book of a very Wilford Brimley-looking Rio. There's a character named is Quick Draw, and another character named is Zap. The Squid Monkey? Yeah. I like that they specifically used Wilford Brimley as a reference, so I'm, I'm happy that he is... Continues to be part of the Star Wars universe. Um, on that page, too, there's a wonder, wonderful drawing of Rio as a backpack riding on Chewie. Oh, the squid monkey. Zap. Zap looks like a baby Borgullet or something. Quick draw for a while. Looked like a tiny little baby Max Rebo or something. I don't know. My only hope is we know Lucasfilm never throws anything away. And if we could get worm... Rio Durant or Squid Monkey or Quick Draw or Zap or the Wilford Brimley looking alien. I hope we can get we can get Quick Draw with the with the pompadour hair swinging through the trees with Shia. <laughs> I do have to mention too on the I think it's page one hundred. There's some sketches of Val and there's a sketch of Val with a super sweet space cowboy visor hat that I think I want to make one for myself to wear in the summertime. Yeah, that is in- intensely cool. What we get next we go to Mimbin. It's quite a few kind of big more kind of sprawling shots of the battle on Mimbin. Um I actually really like I think it's the one on 115 with just the the actually showing the Adat ships dropping their Adat ATSTs. Some interesting actually tracked tank designs which seems to always show up in Star Wars. And then they decide not to do it. And then a couple movies later, they think about it. Yeah. And then kind of right after that, we get into a bunch of stuff with Enfys Nest, where you kind of get the sense that uh, they're saying they left that design completely up to the art department. And Enfys Nest and the Cloud Riders gang was a, a combination of Native American and, again, punk rock and bikers and samurai and... They're talking about how the design for Enthus Nest with getting that right went on for like an entire year. And anything that was rejected for Enthus Nest went into the Cloud Riders. And on page 135, did you see this? We learn about Enthus Nest's ship, the Buckshot. I was happy. I knew they thought of it. I liked that uh, <laughs> uh, in, the, in the comments they talk about it too. They made the ship and they like... Oh, because originally in the movie they showed up, you saw their ship, and then the speeders came out of the ship, and now the speeders just show up. And he says, we don't quite know how they get from planet to planet and laughs, but we know now. Originally the buckshot had a lot more to do. It's pretty neat, too, that it's it's not that big. It's like just big enough for the, for the motorcycles to fit in it. And it totally kind of looks like a B-wing. Well, if we get our uh, Enfys Nest movie, maybe the buckshot will show up. So one of the most fascinating parts of the art of Solo is all the pages on Dryden Voss. Because not only do you get 
concepts of Dryden Voss as a bird man, as a dinosaur man with a bird pet. But you also get on page 143, like a clay maquette that might be our only look at what really could be what Michael K. Williams version of Dryden Voss was when he said he was like a dog man. And I still kind of wonder, too, if he was fully prosthetic as a dog man or that they just give him enough and they were going to CG over it because they didn't know what he was going to look like. On 145, there's that little drawing where they're talking about how the henchmen kind of look like Disney, Disney apes. That drawing seems like that could be what the old Dryden looked like as well. It's kind of a more human version of the maquette from the previous page. And on the page before that, too, you get kind of the sense that a lot of these dog man concepts are kind of born out of the idea of playing with having Dryden Voss being a Lasat, like uh, like our buddy Zeb from Rebels. I like the Dryden with glasses watering a plant. I guess that's the thing with the Art of Solo book that sets it apart from the Art of Last Jedi book, where the Art of Last Jedi book, you read through that and you got the sense very clearly that Ryan Johnson was very clear in what he wanted. And there wasn't a whole lot of deviation from the ideas. The father years always kind of looked like the father years and the crate speeders didn't always kind of look like the crate speeders, but you get the sense that there was a whole lot more exploration going on with solo. Well, it's interesting too. I wonder with everyone going back and forth between movies too, if some of the, if dinosaur Dryden somehow influenced dinosaur caretakers or, or vice versa. Somebody was going to get a dinosaur person in their movie. Page 148 is great because we get a really good look at the the little fish ladies that we briefly see in his party. They got all dressed up. They put on their fancy dresses to go to Dryden Voss's party. I don't blame them. I don't think they'll let you in. There's a dress code. <laughs> like if you showed up wearing like a Metallica t-shirt and jeans, the guys at the door, you can come in. You need a jacket. <laughs> if Lucas showed up with his plaid shirt, what? Oh, Hold on, let me get the blazer. Yeah. There's tons and tons of pages of uh, Lando and the Falcon. There's some great stuff in there with uh, ILM Art Department's James Klein talking about how like we were saying, he took influence from the interior of the Falcon from 2001, which was designed by this guy, Harry Lang, who then after Harry Lang worked on 2001, he was an art director and set decorator for Empire and Jedi. It's wild to think about that, too, like how much um, 2001, which is so innovative at its time for a science fiction film and set the course for Star Wars. And then Harry Lang worked on the Star Wars sequels. But now this later Star Wars sequel is taking influence from what influenced Star Wars. It never ends. <laughs> I liked seeing um, how initially they were kind of thinking of Lando as Jimi Hendrix. And there's a few of the concepts where he looks very Jimi Hendrix with the longer hair. Again, he should have just been playing guitar. He could have been singing love, love songs to L3. L3. <laughs> Speaking of L3, there's like four pages of amazing L3 concept art. And uh, artist Glenn Dillon is talking about how L3's almost kind of like hamburger-shaped head is riffing on the Falcon design, almost like that she came with the Falcon. Like if you got, if you bought the Falcon, here's the droid that comes with it. There's a lot of different versions of L3 that they were playing around with. There's like a real small cutesy almost BB-8-like L3. It was almost like little gonk droids looking L3, which I feel like some of these L3 concepts ended up kind of informing what, what happens later in like the droid love revolution part. I like the one that looks like Rob the robot from the NES that's sitting at the hollow chest table. It's going to drop those pegs in the holes or whatever the heck Robbie the robot did. It's just holding uh, gyroscopes. We get into kind of after that, we get into Vandor. With some pictures that really made me sad of uh, looks like Han and maybe Kira riding the Spaceyaks, which you see the Spaceyaks, but we never saw anyone riding them. And 
I think in the movie they aren't even the space yaks. They're like space goats. They're tinier. I think the I don't think the yaks made it. They made it on the poster, but not in the movie. Because I was thinking about that, that in the review in our review episode, we totally forgot about the yaks because the yaks were on that one poster. I feel kind of betrayed, but I was promised space yaks on the poster, and I'm really trying to enjoy Solo, and I I don't want to ruin the mood by talking about my bummed out state of promised space yaks. Huh. Because, man, on 176, that picture of Han and Chewie sitting on the yaks, and Han's got the binoculars. Oh, yeah, I know. We didn't get Chewie riding on a creature. As cool as the the train heist was in the film, seeing the concept on the next page on what 177, of them actually doing it on the ground, jumping off of space yaks onto something, while the Enfys Nest gang has a, some sort of speeder, but they're just running on creatures. When I close my eyes at night, I still see it. You see that picture. Well, again, there's a great quote in here, too, from um, from James Klein talking about how so much of Solo and taken again from the vibe of McCabe and Mrs. Miller is the whole frontier of America thing. And there's discussion about like the Western westward expansion. Solo starts with Han kind of in like this desolate city. And in a way, like through Solo, through the movie, He's almost like traveling across America. Right, from the cities in the East Coast, over the mountains, in the Rockies, into what ultimately ending at the coast of California. And I was thinking about that last night when I watched the movie. And like the part where when Han is flying over the mountains, I know if you want to get deep with it, like crossing over the mountains, like at that moment, that's kind of Han's leaving his old life behind and becoming who he later becomes, Han Solo. The outlaw. The outlaw, yeah. <laughs> I'm an outlaw. But kind of, yeah, Han's journey in the film is this trek across this very American landscape. In this section of the book, we gotta we can't forget to call out on 178, there's a, a tiny little picture that packs a big punch of uh, Chewie yelling at a feral Ewok. <laughs> Some big <laughs> fat alien has a pet Ewok on a, on a leash and... Uh, it's getting in a shouting match with Chewie. Han's pulling him away. It could have been. It could have been. <laughs> yeah. Right after that beautiful, beautiful piece of art, there's a whole bunch of pages of really amazing artwork of the uh, the card game buddies. You get a full body shot of um, Healthy Snack, the big Cyclops creature. You learn that uh, the Six Eyes guy originally started as a pilot for Last Jedi. The bootleg Zuvio card dealer was uh, one of, a, I think, a rejected Enfys Nest design. So kind of right after that, we get a whole thing on the Pike Syndicate, everything on Kessel. We get a little bit of fascinating insight into the Pike design, that originally the first Pike was made by artist David Hobbins and approved by George Lucas in April 2007. And then in 2009, that design was honed in on by artist Doug Wheatley, and it was carried over into the unmade, famously unmade, Criminal Underworld video game 1313. And then the Pikes finally made their debut in January 2013 on Clone Wars, leading up to their big screen debut in Solo, where we finally see a refinement on the Pike design in these pages. And could that first illustration by David Hobbins in April 2007 the Pike Mass started as a Jedi concept. Do you think that was for Clone Wars? It must have been. Right? That's what I was thinking. Like, what else was going on in 2007? Mysteries. These art books are full of mysteries. <laughs> there's some great stuff, too, with Kessel, where there's a whole abandoned sequence of Han and Chewie running through the mines, and there was, like, this giant mole slug with a drill attached to his head that was going to be chasing them. Yeah, that's great. All the little the different variations of that mind mind beast. There's tons of great stuff on the Kessel Run. Amazing illustrations. We learned that the uh, the giant space squid was kind of just an offhand idea. Someone in a meeting just threw out there, like, "What if they encounter a giant squid in space?" And obviously, it stuck. I was happy to see on page 203 for the Kessel stuff that there's a little sketch of the pack horse droid and kind of shows how the People go inside of it. I think that's in two scenes in the movie, but it's never, it's just kind of off to the side. You don't really get a good look at it. 
because it shows up once in Mimbin when they're walking through the trenches, a variation on it. And then I think you do see it in Kessel, the kind of big, wide, four-legged droid thing. Yeah, I can't wait. When they're on Mimbin and they walk past it, I feel like every time I watch the movie, I don't hear what anyone says in that scene because I'm just concentrating on this giant four-legged droid. I keep thinking it's going to like stand up and I'm going to see it. And I just forgot about that part. And then each time it's like, oh, no, that's <laughs> they just you just see it a little bit in the background. It's calling to me. Look at me. Gabe. <laughs> I'm in the corner. Don't look at Beckett and Val. We get some great pages on the Empire with a very like um, motorcycle cop stormtrooper, which also looks very uh, THX one one three eight. Yeah, I like that they joke about how they didn't really look at chips. What? You know, you were watching chips. In case people don't know, we watched. We used to watch a lot of chips. We used to miss a lot of school to watch a lot of chips. So that one jumped out to me as uh, it's one of my favorites in the book. If it wasn't uh, Star Wars on Laserdisc, it was Chips episode. So we can either go to class. Oh, Chips is on. Oh, we can't go to class now. <laughs> it's it's shocking. This is the first time we've brought up Chips. I yeah. think I know it is right. We're uh, almost 130 episodes in. It's our first talk of Chips. We would skip class because Chips was on, but Chips was on every day. <laughs> It wasn't like it was special. I think it was on every day. And someone could argue, too, if Chips was truly special. I think it was. Sticking with the Empire stuff, you get a good look at a 3D model of Colin Cantwell's early um, Star Destroyer. I like that they were calling, uh, or at least in some of the concepts, they were calling it the Imperial Bulk Cruiser. I've outrun Imperial starships, not the local Bulk Cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Carillion ships now. And you get like this, a good look at the weird, the proto-TIE fighter. That's in the movie like a lot, but you never really get a good look at it. And the code name for that was the Bubba Tie. <laughs> they call it the Terminator of Tie Fighters. I like the concept. Uh, one of the rough versions of it, where I had like the angled kind of Darth Vader wings, and then we get to Savarine. There's an interesting thing in the Savarine section of an illustration of Chewie rescuing Han from a fire. No idea what's going on in that. There's a concept of like a shootout on the top of the Falcon. I thought that was kind of an interesting idea of them having an action scene on the exterior of the Falcon would have been pretty cool. Because there's actually another kind of concept uh, on the 239 before that where it looks like like before the shootout starts, kind of a standoff on top of the Falcon. On page 244 and 245, I found this really fascinating that there is a whole color script they made up for the entire movie kind of showing how the movie starts very monochromatic and i thought this was an interesting thing to do in here because i've seen this in like a lot of like the art of pixar books and i feel like this is something that's done with a lot of animated films and i wonder with lord miller's background with animation oh i didn't think about that yeah if yeah if this is something that they kind of had in their heads of something they wanted to do visually with the film, this whole color script. That makes a lot of sense, yeah, because I saw this and I was like, oh, yeah, cool, it's like an animated movie. But, yeah, those guys would make sense. It came from them. I found it really interesting to see, too, because it the movie kind of follows this idea, but it never gets as colorful as this was planning out. And I wonder when that changed. Because actually seeing the movie ending with the sunset actually – Kind of makes me sad a little bit that the real movie didn't end that way with like Han and Chewie walking into the sunset kind of thing. And it made me think, too, like I was saying, like Han's costume in Solo, it just is kind of like dark maroon kind of jacket. It's not as black and white as he is in A New Hope, almost being like this Han has more color to him. And by the time we meet him in the original film, he is much more of a black and white kind of person. 
And in the little coda at the end of the book, CG supervisor Andrew Booth has a great thing reminding us that George Lucas said that Star Wars design shouldn't call attention to itself. And when it's great, it doesn't. And like when I was reading that, I kept thinking like that. It's like we were talking about when we in the beginning of the episode when we started talking about the book, that that's something that these art of books do, that when the Star Wars movies work visually, you're not thinking about the visuals you're looking at. You're just watching it and taking it all in. And half the time it goes by so fast, you're not even able to. But the books let you slow down and think about the visuals and how they got to where they are. The the design is able to call attention to itself for a little while. That's why I love these books so much, and that's why I'm so glad the art of Star Wars books is still a long-running tradition, because you need these as companion pieces to the films. At least at least I think so. No, I agree. I think they're their own enjoyment. I mean, I think you could not see the film and just get the book and get a feel for the story and just enjoy looking at the pictures. And then just, you know, you get the little insights from interviews and comments from the from the artists. And now, yeah, as we get more and more of the Star Wars films, it's fun to just kind of compare the ideas they came up with, compare the art styles. Because, again, I mean, as it's been, what, 40 years of progression from the Ralph McQuarrie stuff to what they have now. And just it's fun to see how similar things are and, and just how much things have changed, too, as far as just the style and the techniques. I think we've brought this up in the other episodes, but man, I don't know what the chances of this happening are, but I really hope someday that they start releasing digital versions of all these because I would love to be able to have all the Star Wars art books on my iPad and I would probably buy them all a, a second time if they made them available that way. That would be fascinating too because I could imagine the interactivity of it all would be really amazing. Yeah, I highly recommend you pick up the Art of Solo book, even if you've never picked up a Star Wars art book before. If you got to start somewhere, you can't go wrong with the Solo one. No, and that's and that's a good point. It is a good one to kind of get your feet wet into the whole Star Wars art book thing because it's like we said, there's some crazy stuff in this one. <laughs> one is the best lesson that I learned from George, which is the three-second rule. During one of our art meetings, I was presenting to George uh, a bunch of designs. He came in the room and very quickly looked at the whole board and right away identified the you know two or three that he really liked, not the one that I liked. And I finally had the courage to say, okay, well, why did you pick those instead of this? And he said, well, Doug, you know, the designs have to live by themselves. When you see them on the screen, you're not going to be there to explain what it is. The audience has to connect with it right away. You have to know its personality. You have to know its function. You have to know where the pilot sits, which direction it's going. All those things in less than three seconds. And if you can do that in a design without any explanation, the design will be that much more powerful. This most popular movie is great family entertainment. Still showing on the giant screen at the Dominion Tottenham Court Road. Seats bookable. Star Wars. Certificate U. May the Force be with you. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. All right, so iTunes reviews. When you're done listening, head over to iTunes, write a little something, 
And if you do that, we'll read it on an upcoming show. We don't have any to read this week, so hopefully maybe we can get some new ones for next week's show. And check out BlastPointsPodcast.com. Buy t-shirts, listen to theme music, recipes, comics. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to join the Blast Points uh, super fun group on Facebook. There's a lot of good stuff getting posted there. It just keeps on going. So join in on the fun. And don't forget, in just a couple weeks, we're going to be live in Seattle at the Ace Comic Con. It's going to be crazy. We got two panels, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. We're going to have a video, the best of the weird Star Wars. We're going to be playing Japanese George Lucas commercials of him touching wheat and running in a field with Ewoks and stuff. We're going to do some Rusty Miller trivia on Sunday. It's going to be crazy. We're going to try to make all your dreams come true in person. If you live in the Pacific Northwest area, you got to come out for it. Come hang out with us. Come chit chat. Come to our panels. Maybe bring us a rotisserie chicken. I don't know. We might actually eat it. (laughs) Maybe that'll be the whole panel. Come watch Blast Points eat a rotisserie chicken. Be like, it's gross. Every every, uh, Rusty Miller trivia question you get right, we will eat a part of a rotisserie chicken. (laughs) How many chickens will we have to eat? All right, so on that note, that about wraps up episode number 127. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.